beast hadn't noticed me yet, and that was good. I had gotten lucky in seeing him first. He was busy pawing at the ground, his six-inch claws leaving raking scars across the soil. His scent, thick and musty, rising through the hot summer air. My eyes darted between his lumbering mass and my child laying carelessly in the grass between us. I knew I would have to be quick. I felt my heart rate pick up. My breathing grew rapid. I placed my hand over my diaphragm, urging myself to breathe slowly, to breathe deeply. I can feel my calf muscles curl beneath the skin, waiting to pounce. One more breath, and I'm off. I reach him quickly. I pull his tiny body to my breast, clutching him tightly, and turn for the house. But I've been spotted. I can feel the earth shake as every massive paw hits the earth. I can smell his breath as it heaves, trying to throw his enormity through the air towards me. I reach the door, open it, toss my baby inside, close it quickly behind me, relieved that he is safe, and then turn to face me. It's a giant bear, and it's hungry. I have become its prey, distracted from whatever meager morsels burrow beneath the Rocky Mountain soil. It's seen me. It leaps through the air. I see blood and saliva drip off of its three-inch fangs. I can smell it. I can hear it. It's going for my throat. And just before it gets to me, I wake up. Welcome to episode one of The Midnight Owl. And today, as you might have guessed, we're discussing dreams. That was a dream I had last night. And it stuck with me today, perhaps because I knew I would be discussing dreams in this episode, and I've been thinking a lot about dreams, writing a lot about dreams, etc., etc. That dream was particularly a bit scary, if not because of the contents of the dreams, then because tonight, as I was getting ready to record this episode, I was sat in the living room with my family as I'm visiting them here in the Rocky Mountains, and we heard a loud noise come from our garage, so we, of course we all jumped up to go see what it was. And as I looked out the window, I saw a rather large black bear go skittering out of our garage across our driveway through the woods behind our house and into our neighbor's yard. So perhaps I have prophetic dreams or some kind of future-telling ability in my sleep, or perhaps it was a coincidence, which wouldn't be that shocking, given that I'm staying in the Rocky Mountains with my family, and it's late summer, early fall, when bears are starting to get particularly curious as they try to plump up for the winter and get ready for hibernation. So either way, just an interesting an interesting note that that dream turned out to be so so fitting for tonight's episode. So as I said, we'll be discussing dreams this episode, and I just thought that would be such an interesting topic to start us off. I find dreams really fascinating. I've been quite an active dreamer my whole life. I have a few that I remember from when I was a kid. I have reoccurring dreams. I have world-building dreams. I have dreams that feel absolutely real. I have dreams where I know it's a dream. I've tried keeping a dream journal, though I'm not very good at it. Um, but I, I love dreams, and I know a lot of people get really bored when people start talking about their dreams and telling, you know, coworkers or family or friends about their dreams, but I am not one of those people. I think it is so interesting. I always want to hear about what people have been dreaming the night before. I am 
particularly interested to know what my partner is dreaming about as he often is having very interesting conversations in his sleep. And I would just, I would love to know what's going on there. But uh, yeah, so today here on the Midnight Owl, we will be discussing dreams. Forgive me if I take a break here and there to have a sip of my tea. It is allergy season here in the Rocky Mountains and my voice is going fast. Um, as anyone who suffers from allergies and pollen allergies will know. So you'll forgive me if a lot of this episode is the history of dream interpretations. I am a historian. (laughs) I do find that really fascinating, but I also found the modern science really incredible. So we will be going into that as well, but we're going to start with a little bit. Okay. A lot of bit, a lot of bit of history. So, of course, no discussion of the history of dreams would be complete without talking about dreams in the Bible. There are 21 recorded dreams in the Bible. A lot of them come from Genesis. Now, there's two types of dreams in the Bible, and it's really there's two types of dreams we'll see over and over again. There's message dreams and symbolic dreams. Message dreams tend to not need any kind of interpretation. They're pretty straightforward. Usually a dream character has spoken a distinct message to the dreamer, whereas symbolic dreams need someone to maybe interpret them. And that actually ends up, as we will see, being a profession that people would interpret dreams. So where do we see them in the Bible? Well, we see some dreams around the birth of Jesus Christ, where Joseph has message dreams concerning upcoming events in Matthew 1, 20 through 1, 20 through 25, 2, 13, and 19 through 20. Um, basically just, you know, giving instructions and, and telling Joseph what's what's coming. And uh, then there's symbolic dreams. And symbolic dreams are something like Jacob with Jacob's ladder, which is a well-known dream. So Jacob is fleeing for his life from his twin brother. Um, and he lays down... And he has this dream. He has a vision of a ladder or a stairway, although I think we mostly know it is Jacob's ladder. When I lived in Edinburgh, there's a there's a ladder that kind of comes down from a ladder. It's a stairway <laughs> that comes down from from Colton Hill and hands you off towards Old Town. And that's known as Jacob's ladder. So, you know, and we used to do the string game when I was a kid and you would knot the string between your fingers and make Jacob's ladder. So that's how I I knew it. But apparently in this, this ladder, the angels of of God are going up and down this ladder and God is standing at the top of the ladder and he repeats this promise of supporting Abraham and Isaac. And he tells Jacob that his children will be many and he'll have all these blessings and that I'm with you and I keep you wherever I go. And that's Genesis 28, 15. So that's the the ladder to, to heaven, the stairway to heaven. And then there's, of course, there's Pharaoh's dreams, and Pharaoh is having some rather concerning dreams. He's having these dreams of cows and and uh, plump ears of corn. It's been described as grain in some translations as well. Essentially, he has two dreams. One, where he's standing on the banks of the Nile, and he sees seven healthy fat cows come out of the Nile, and seven skinny unhealthy cows come out of the Nile, and the seven unhealthy skinny cows start eating the healthy fat plump cows and the same thing happens with the corn there's seven healthy stalks of corn seven unhealthy and diseased blighted corn stalks and the diseased ones consume the plump ones so 
he, he doesn't know what to do with this. He's really upset by this. And none of the wise men in Egypt nor the dream diviners could interpret these dreams, which is really saying something because Egypt had professional dream interpreters. So one of Pharaoh's servants remembers that there's this guy down in our prison that happens to be a dream interpreter. So he brings Joseph up from the prison and he is... God reveals the meaning behind Pharaoh's dream, and it's a symbolic dream which essentially predicts seven good years of prosperity in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine, as represented by the unhealthy cows and the unhealthy, the unhealthy corn. Now, outside of the Bible, Egyptian and Mesopotamian, rather reverse those, Mesopotamian and Egyptian cultures give us our first written examples of, of dream interpretation, our oldest examples of dream interpretation. So again, here we see, you know, we see message dreams and symbolic dreams in our early cultures and our early records of dreams as far as message dreams. This, we usually see some sort of dream character, whether that's a god or another human, sometimes an animal, etc. They come down, they speak with the dreamer, they give them a very clear message. And interestingly, according to this study done by J. Donald Hughes, and it's called Dream Interpretation in Ancient Civilizations, and a lot of what I'm about to talk about will come from that wonderful study. So he says that cultural expectations really had an impact on the content of the dream. So there was a cultural and societal context in which these dreams were sitting much as I would say our dreams do today. What I'm saying is we probably don't dream about being, you know, prehistoric people or generally in a different time period, you know, we and we might, but it wouldn't be weird for us to dream about cars, skyscrapers, maybe things we've seen on the news, maybe things that are stressing us out in our cultural and time period. So they're rooted in that. So what we're seeing in these early civilizations are dreams that are a little bit more based in nature and the pursuit of survival in these early civilizations. So one of the uh, message dreams that we know of, uh, a good example comes from a king of Babylon, the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus, who reigned from 556 to 539 BCE. And in this dream, the god Marduk and the god Sin, who's the moon god, um, come to Nabonidus and they say, bring bricks on your own chariot and rebuild this temple and let the moon god Sin live in this temple. Similarly, in Egyptian culture, there's this prince who would become Thutmose IV. He's taking a nap in the shadow of the Sphinx. The Sphinx we're all pretty familiar with. And in this dream, the Sphinx speaks to him and says, quote, Behold me, look at me, my son Tutmos. I am your father, the Sphinx. The kingdom shall be given to you. Plenty and riches shall be yours. Long years shall be granted you. My countenance is gracious towards you, and my heart clings to you. The sand of the district in which I have my existence has covered me up. Promise me that you will do what I in my heart wish. Then will I acknowledge that you are my son, that you are my helper. So, of course, Tetmos goes on to clear the sand from the body of the Sphinx, and, and now we see that body, we're familiar with it. And to this day, there's a stella, which is essentially a large slab of stone, a large, large tablet. It stands between the paws of the Sphinx and has that dream inscription on it. So, there it is. There's the proof of that dream written down, which 
is just so interesting that it's it's written down. These dreams really were important to early civilizations. They really were communications between, at least in their eyes, themselves, their kings, and their gods. So really, really important. But those are both message dreams. So they're pretty clear. Then there's symbolic dreams, which need to be interpreted by some kind of dream interpreter. So the oldest we know are the dreams of Gilgamesh, the king of the Sumerian city of Uruk. And I could be saying that wrong. I'm probably definitely saying that wrong. Um, Who lived around 2700 to 2600 BCE. So we're talking way later in Sumeria. And there is an epic of Gilgamesh, which some of you might know of. And essentially Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk in in this epic. And he fights this character called Enkidu, or Enkidu. I I think Enkidu sounds great. Essentially, Enkidu or Enkidu is this wild man who has been created to come down and challenge Gilgamesh and stop Gilgamesh from being essentially a tyrant. Uh, Enkidu loses the challenge, and they become friends, and they go on to defeat a bull that's sent by the goddess Ishtar. And, you know, it's a great epic with heroes and and friendship, etc. But Gilgamesh has two dreams in which he sees a meteor fall to the earth and it's a really large meteor. He goes to find this meteor and can't lift it. It's too heavy and all of the people of the city come out to see him try and lift this and then the the aristocracy of the city come out and they start kissing this meteor and worshiping this meteor and eventually they manage to build a system in order to lift this meteor and they bring the meteor to Gilgamesh's mother and she says this is your brother and so when he tells these dreams to his mother his mother interprets them and side note a lot of the people that interpret dreams are women as we will see anyway she says this this dream is symbolic of somebody who's going to come into your life who will both be strong and attractive to you and that person ends up being um, you know Ankidu. so while it's rather somewhat you know, simplistic interpretation. It was still one that very much needed interpretation. So interpreters of dreams was actually a profession. In Babylon, they'd be priests or seers, that kind of thing, um, who would basically interpret which god or demon, maybe the nocturnal demon Zakiku, were having an impact on these dreams. Now, if you had a nightmare, if you had a negative dream, now I find this so cool. So in in Babylon, if you have a negative dream, you need to be cleansed because you've had some interaction with this demon or a negative god. So one option to do that is the dream could be transferred to a lump of clay and then that clay could be dissolved in water or the dreamer could take a reed speak the dream to the reed so that the reed absorbs that dream and then burn that reed blow on the fire and then they'll get relief from the negativity of that dream Um, these dream interpreters in egypt were known as scribes of the double house of life they were generally priests Uh, they were in charge of papyri containing knowledge about dreams and omens and lore etc so these people would then write dream books, which were rather common. Uh, The earliest that we have are clay tablets. They've actually been found in what was Mesopotamia. And a lot of them come from an Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, who ruled from 668 to 627 BCE. 
And there's a lot of interesting interpretations on there, but the one that was most interesting to J. Donald Hughes and, you know, good on him because I find this really interesting, are the dreams about urine. Yes, the dreams about pee. So apparently in ancient Mesopotamia, it was really frowned upon. It was really bad to interact with any kind of excrement. So to dream about urine was really interesting, but basically they say, you know, there's all these different translations of if you're, you know, someone's peeing on your foot, then your eldest son will die. If you're washing your hands in urine, you'll enjoy something coming up. If you sprinkle himself, you know, your sheep flock will get bigger, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, if you drink the urine of your wife, you'll experience abundance. But what this author points out, which I think is really important, is that given that it was okay for a king to have this knowledge of dreams with urine in it, or even maybe be perhaps having these dreams himself, speaks to the fact that they were interpreting these dreams as symbolic. They weren't saying that this king is having a message to do that or is going to be doing that and therefore breaking these societal rules. Instead, they recognize that there's a symbolic metaphorical context and and subsistence to these to these dreams that need some kind of interpretation so as far as dream books in egypt go there's one from about 1300 bce from the 12th dynasty and it has two sections which talk about dreams of the two categories of humans the followers of horus and the followers of set and they talk about the dreams of those two types of people then also, there was basically this idea of, in ancient cultures, incubating dreams. So essentially, if you had a dream, maybe not just the common person, but probably someone higher up in the social scale, if you have these dreams that are causing you issues, you can go to a temple and a priest or a dream interpreter will sleep next to you and see if they can get a dream that explains your dream, essentially, and incubate a dream. So usually it was in a temple chamber, probably in like a circular fashion with depictions of gods around there. And they would try and incubate a dream that would explain their dream and then either give them some kind of prediction of the future or message, etc. So there is an example in this study of a woman who's unable to bear a child for her husband, who's a high priest. She goes to the temple of Imhotep and basically sleeps overnight there with somebody hoping they'll have a you know a shared dream and in this dream she's given instructions or the, you know there's a translation by this priest of instructions of how to eventually become pregnant so she follows these instructions which is essentially getting a root and and having her husband eat this root and then she'll get pregnant and sure enough she followed the advice and she gave birth to a child so there are records of these dreams, these dream books, which is really, really interesting in these ancient cultures. Dreams were also a huge deal to the Greeks. They have a lot about dreaming and they kind of develop what we know as the dream interpretation. And that's probably because Greeks believed that dreams were messages from God or that they foretold the future or indeed that they could cure illnesses or that you could speak with the dead in your dreams. So, I mean, if you think that these, that's what dreams do, then yeah, you're going to take them pretty seriously. You know, if you think your gods are speaking to you or that somebody who's dead is speaking to you from beyond the grave or that you're going to get better. 
then that's that's a pretty big deal. So early Grecian writing on dreams comes from Homer first. And Homer should sound somewhat familiar if you've studied any of the classics. So we're thinking, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad. Those are Homer's works. Those are his well-known works. So essentially, he lays out a couple dreams. And basically, there's this idea here, and, and follow me here, that dreams are human-like figures that come and stand at the head of human dreamers and read them kind of a speech that becomes the dream. And these dream people live in their own country, and that country lies alongside the river ocean that runs around the earth and is next to the country of the dead, essentially the next the next life. And that sometimes souls from this country of the dead will jump over into this dream country, this dream continent, and will will be the one speaking to the dreamer. And these dreams come through the gate of ivory if they're false dreams or the gate of horn if they're true dreams and then they enter a bedroom through like the keyhole stand above the head of the dreamer and and tell the dreamer these dreams and there's really no need to interpret dreams like that you know those are those message dreams we were talking about earlier so at the battle of troy achilles is talking to agamemnon and they're having such a hard time there's this plague is broken out and it's really taking a toll on their soldiers and their numbers and it's making them pretty weak and they basically attribute this to Apollo the god Apollo and that Apollo is really angry with them and they can't figure out why and so Achilles suggests that they have a a dream incubation and try and get a dream from a priest or a dream interpreter to figure out why this is as dreams come from Zeus you know let's find out why his son is so mad at us in another one of Homer's classics, the Odyssey, the wife of Odysseus, Penelope, has been on her own for decades as her husband tries to come back from the Battle of Troy, and she's got many, many, many suitors lining up, but she's staying faithful to her husband, and she has a dream in which there are 20 geese, but an eagle comes and kills the 20 geese and then comes and returns to her in the nest, and of course this ends up being her husband who comes home to find all these suitors and, and ends up killing them and returning home. So, you know, those dreams are pretty clear. Uh, Historians in the Grecian culture, like Herodotus, also speak to dreams as a part of the historical narrative, as being something of a historical fact, and and, in similar ways that we would, really, that if, you know, a historical figure that we studied, if, for example, Winston Churchill said that a dream made him, you know, go to this certain tactic position in France, that kind of thing. It would end up in a history book, etc. So Herodotus talks about that in regards to King Xerxes of Persia, who, if you are familiar with the movie 300, King Xerxes of Persia is the king that led the million-person army of Persia against the 300 Spartans at the gates of Thermopylae. Uh, so that, that King Xerxes has a dream, and basically this dream says that if you don't attack Greece, you'll fall to ruin, you know, nothing good will come of it, so you need to attack Greece, and he doesn't really necessarily agree with this, with this dream, uh, so he tells this dream to a dream interpreter who then sleeps in bed with him, has the same dream, and interprets it for him, and, and basically gives credence to the to the significance and the reality of this dream. 
Also, in Greek culture, in ancient Greek culture, there were dream oracles, and they would have essentially temples, and they would they would decipher dreams. There was a dream oracle at Delphi in the 8th century or so, and they basically believed that Gaia, who is Mother Earth, was giving dreams to mankind, and they would then not ask for Apollo's advice. Again, Apollo has, has some temper issues and doesn't like it when men don't need him. So people were not going to Delphi anymore to get their dreams answered by the oracle because Mother Earth had given men clear, straightforward dreams that would give them, you know, future predictions and heal their illnesses and stuff. So Apollo goes and complains to Zeus, who happens to be his dad, and Zeus ends up making dreams really confusing and hard to remember like they are now uh, to make it to make it a little bit fair. Hippocrates, uh, so if we think of the Hippocratic Oath, that's where it comes from, is, is Hippocrates. So he wrote a book called On Dreams in the 5th century and basically sees dreams as tools of diagnosis for illnesses and mental health and physical health. So he sees the mind and the body as being connected and dependent on one another. That if one affects, you know, if one is sick, the other will be sick etc etc and that dreams you know they are this diagnostic is something going on are we healthy in our mind are we healthy in our body and they are useful because they come to us when our psyche what he calls a psyche or our soul is no longer dependent on the flesh so we get a little bit clearer image of what's going on inside it also tells, you know, how to use dreams as indications of medical things. This example in this study by Hughes says that if one dreams of rain or hail, that probably means one is suffering from too much phlegm. And if one has natural dreams, then everything's fine. You have a healthy state. Um, but, you know, if you dream of certain things, you might have too much of one thing or too little of another, etc. So that was how he kind of went about it, that they were an attempt to explain the mystery of the human body and the the connection between the body and the mind. Aristotle also wrote on dreams and essentially Aristotle says in his on dreams and on prophesying by dreams that dreams we can't be perceiving sensations in our dreams because we're asleep and our eyes are closed so it not all of our senses are active and most of our senses are inactive so they can't be a perception of of senses they also can't be opinions you know we're, we're sleeping and they also have characteristics like like color light texture you know so he basically thinks that we then apply opinion and reason to our dreams when we wake up which is really interesting because I, I mean, I think that's a point I hadn't really thought about, you know, like you're not actually seeing something, you're sleeping. So he basically says that dreams are a spontaneous action of our faculties that we then apply our own opinion and our own meaning on. He also says he doubts dreams are from God because just anyone can have them and you have them so often that you know, they're probably not from God, because why would gods want to come talk to just any Joe Schmo every night? You know, that wouldn't, that wouldn't make any sense. And he also posits that, you know, it could be a coincidence. It could totally be a coincidence that I had a dream about a bear in my yard, and there was a bear in my yard tonight. So, you know, he, he also gives that some, some credence as well. 
Alexander the Great was also a fan of dream interpretation and brought a dream interpreter on his conquests with him. That was one of the people that came in his his large party because he wanted his dreams interpreted so that he might have an edge in battle. The ancient Romans also wrote a lot about dreams. Cicero wrote about dreams. He says similar to Aristotle, you know, we have so many dreams every night, you know, it's probably not divine given that we're dreaming so often and that there's so many dreams and they're so random that it's it's probably not that. So from the ancient cultures, we're then going to skip ahead quite a bit. And I, I know that might be frustrating for some historians, but I did want to get into the Middle Ages and a little earlier and a little later into the Renaissance as well. But um, one of the things that I find fascinating was the interpretation of dreams in Norse cultures. So Norse cultures really did take their dreams pretty seriously while accepting that some were totally, you know, they didn't mean anything. They were just really nonsense. Um, they called those dreams Dramskrok, which means dream nonsense. And then others were really, really, really important. You know, those dreams could foretell the future. They could tell us what was going to happen. In the poem, The Song of the Skirnir, Eddick says, my destiny was fashioned down to the last half day and all my life was determined. And that basically points to, you know, fate was there pointing along the way and that dreams were a big part of that. Dreams ended up being kind of significant and written down a lot in Norse culture. There was the dream of Queen Ragnhild, who was the queen of Norway during the 9th century, along with King Halfdan the Black. And she dreamed that she had taken off a brooch she was wearing. Roots began growing out of it and growing into the ground. And these roots took over all over Norway. And, and she realizes upon having this dream interpreted that the roots the tree that grew out of this brooch were her descendants. Then later on, her son, Harold, would become the first ruler of all of a combined Norway. And in other cases, dreams were seen as a way of communicating with kind of otherworldly spirits, such as elves and, and deities, etc. Uh, there's a story that an Icelandic settler by the name of Bjorn met with a certain type of spirit who offered to help Bjorn and this goat makes its way into Bjorn's goat herd, and then they have so many kids, which are baby goats, that he became very rich on selling him, and that there was basically spirits that followed Bjorn around. Other dreams gave people poetic abilities, and they started writing poetry, and it was seen in these Norse cultures that poetry was a gift from Odin, and so these dreams were actually, you know, communication with not just any deity, but like the deity, Odin, the big guy. Um, as in the other ancient cultures, there were dream interpreters. There were seers, people that could tell you what the dream meant. So if you'd had a dream that was upsetting you, you could go to this person and they would they would tell you what it meant. Um, one of the ways of figuring out what your dreams meant was to sleep on grave mounds or sleeping inside of animal hides. And that might give you some some, you know, clear idea of what your dream meant and a lot of this I got from an article called dreams on a site called North Norse mythology for smart people it's a short article but I thought it was really interesting uh, in the medieval period is particularly in in England dream visions were also really important and they were rather popular in the medieval period and they would use different sources, you know, like the Bible, essentially, to interpret what these dreams meant. 
most importantly, they used the book of Job in the Bible. And Job 33, 14 through 18 says, quote, God speaketh once and repeateth not the self same thing the second time by a dream and a vision by night when deep sleep falleth upon men and they are sleeping in their beds. Then he openeth the ears of men and teaching instructeth them in what they are to learn that he may withdraw a man from the things he is doing and may deliver him from pride, rescuing his soul from corruption. So essentially medieval people saw this as saying that God will appear in dreams and will give you messages as we've seen, you know, in past cultures, this again repeats in monotheistic Christian cultures in the middle ages now. So uh, Gregory the Great, who is a pope who sent St. Augustine on this mission to bring Christianity to England, and he wrote commentary on the book of Job, and he writes that the voice of God is heard in dreams. When there's a tranquil mind, there's quiet from the action of this world, and in this silence of mind, divine precepts are perceived. So basically, he goes on to say that the ear of the heart is closed while the turbulence of terrestrial thoughts resounds, and the less the sound of tumultuous cares is silenced in the secret inner part of the mind, the more the voice of the presiding judge is not heard. So if you keep your mind calm and quiet, God may be more willing to enter your dreams when you sleep. Also popular in the Middle Ages was Cicero's dream of Scipio. And basically, he categorizes dreams. There's five types of dreams. The enigmatic dream, or somnium in Latin, the prophetic dream, visio, the oracular dream, oraculum, nightmare, and insomnium, and the apparition, or visum. Those are the, the five types that he writes down. A prophetic dream was one where, you know, events that were coming would come. Nightmares and apparitions, basically, they were you know, nothing important, really. They were caused by distress of some kind, anxiety. Um, basically, what they say causes them now, which I always find interesting when you see similar ideas crop up in time periods so far away from us. And later on in the Renaissance era, dreams become really important again, and you see them crop up a lot in art. Renaissance artists took up this idea of interpreting dreams and then representing them in their arts. Um, there was an exhibit called Dreams in the Renaissance at the Palazzo Pitti in 2013, and this has had 70 paintings, drawings, books, engravings that represent dreams in, in Renaissance art. And it's, it's quite extensive, really, what Renaissance artists were depicting. You know, there was sleeping Venuses, there were cupids showering young women in dreams. There was the Roman goddess Diana and the Greek moon goddess Selene that were visiting people in the night. Uh, there was Lorenzo Lotto's Sleeping Apollo from the Museum of Fine Arts in Budapest, which was done around 1530. And in this, Apollo is sleeping in a, a tree grove and the muses have ripped off all of their clothes and left the clothes scattered around Apollo's feet along with their books and musical instruments and taken to a meadow where they're dancing and cavorting and, and giggling and stuff. Um, and then there's another one by Lotto called The Dream of the Young Girl. I alluded to this one. This is where a young girl is sleeping and there's a cupid above her and showering her with a stream of flowers and there's a, a female satyr that's hiding behind a fountain and a drunk male satyr playing around her feet that's causing great amusement. So there really was 
a lot of art that used dreams. And that just makes so much sense, you know, when there's kind of this new freedom that comes with the Renaissance of expression, there's, you know, birthed from a humanist idea that's giving credence to individuality and a little bit of expression that people then felt that they could express themselves through art and and dreams would obviously be rich fodder for, for art. So that crops up again. Uh, dream interpretation does and I know I'm skipping over quite a lot of this and as somebody who is an early modern which would be a renaissance historian I would love to dig in this some more and, and play around in this a little bit more but I was really interested in the ancient history on this and I don't want us to get too bogged down in history I know it's been about 40 minutes of history and I do want us to get to the science, the modern science behind dreams so that's what we're going to do now we're going to dive into the modern science of dreams so a large chunk of this next bit that I'm going to be talking about comes from an article from Medical News Today, which is called What it Does It Mean When We Dream? It was written by Hannah Nichols and reviewed by Timothy J. Legg, PhD. So essentially this goes over the modern medical and scientific outlook on dreams, which is really, really fascinating. Um, so apparently we dream between three and six times a night those dreams lasting roughly five to 20 minutes though a vast majority of them estimated here at about 95 percent of dreams are forgotten by the time we get out of bed and also it's really interesting to note as this article does that blind people dream with other sensory components more than people with their sight do you know so they're dreaming with other senses their their ears their rather their hearing and and taste and smell etc which i you know makes a lot of sense and is really really interesting so there's explanations that are a little less scientific about why dreams happen why do we dream um, you could go freudian and say representing unconscious desires and wishes interpreting random signals from the brain and body consolidating and processing information from your day or working as a form of psychotherapy I do want to pause and briefly mention because I just don't think it would be an analysis of dreams without mentioning our old friend, Freud. Freud saw dreams as, quote, the royal road to the unconscious. So basically, a dream could be used as a psychoanalytic tool. And he points to two key issues. Uh, what are the materials of dreams and how do these materials work together? So Freud sees the material of dreams as external experiences or stimuli within the body and mental activities during sleep. And there is a little bit of evidence that suggests that this might be true. Uh, the self-organization theory of dreaming says that memory consolidation and reception of external stimuli can contribute to dream content and can be the materials of dreams. Freud basically said that new memories from the day were called day residues and those daytime activities that had caused those day residues would then be reflected in the dream. And then there was the dream lag effect, which was like stored memories would then be brought into the dream. So something that had been a memory from a little bit further back. And this dream lag, I mean, these memories might not even be memories that you have in your lifetime. They might be evolutionary memories, which would be then reflected in dreams such as flying or falling or being chased, things that our ancestors would have seen as threats and therefore have 
embedded themselves in an evolutionary memory into a narrative of humankind that then is echoed in our dreams, essentially. So Freud goes on to say from there that these materials then make connections that represent our unconscious desires so that a dream is essentially a fulfillment of one of our wishes um, and that disagreeable dreams are more widespread than pleasant dreams and so you know dreams can disguise their true purposes and so freud thought there was manifest dreams and latent dreams with latent dreams being a real dream that needed interpretation uh, i should note here that a lot of the dreams that Freud used in his study of dreams were his own dreams. So take that for what you will. Again, I'm not a scientist. I just thought that was somewhat interesting. Uh, so he basically saw that there was symbols in latent dreams that were relevant signs that needed some kind of interpretation. These signs only came in the latent content of the dream. The manifest content of the dream was just the narrative that played out. So while we're asleep, our unconscious basically forms this representation of the dream content and then the latent content is buried and is unrecognizable to the individual. So Freud, it's complicated, there's a lot to it, but basically that dreams are our unconscious expressing our unconscious desires. It later goes on to be developed into his Oedipus complex and critics of this say there's a lot of sexuality involved in our dreams that maybe isn't necessarily what we're actually what we're actually desiring, you know, um, what Freud is famous for. So Freud was one of the first modern philosophers, scientists, and thinkers to write a lot on dreams. And there is still very much a school that talks about our dreams representing our unconscious desires and wishes and a school of interpretation that works off of that idea as well. So that is, as I said earlier, the, the representing of unconscious desires and wishes. Some people think that's what they are. So with research, now scientists are starting to think that there might be a few more functions of dreams. One of these is the offline memory reprocessing. So basically our brain learning memory tasks and keeping a record. Um, maybe our dreams are preparing us for future, future threats. Maybe our brain is running simulation of real life experiences. Maybe we're developing cognitive abilities. Maybe we're reflecting on something in kind of a psychoanalytic way while we're sleeping. Maybe it's incorporating experiences of our present, past, and preparation for the future. And also maybe it's a place where complex, overwhelming, emotional thoughts can then play out without us being awake and without us partaking in this. The brain can basically deal with damaging emotions and damaging thoughts without our consciousness being damaged while we're dreaming. Basically, a lot is unknown about dreams. There's like a lot unknown. But the science of sleep is coming together and we do know that there's five phases of sleep. So there's the first stage, which is slow eye movement. It's light sleep. You might have some muscle activity. This is about four to 5% of our total sleep. Then we have type two or step two. Our brain waves are now slowing down with occasional bursts of activity called sleep spindles. We spend about 45 to 55% of our sleep here. 
Then there's stage three where our brain starts making delta waves. And this is about four to 6% of our total sleep. From there, we move to stage four where it's really hard to wake somebody up because now, now we're in a deep sleep. There's no eye movement. There's no muscle movement. Uh, if you wake somebody up from a deep sleep, they're going to be groggy. They're not going to know where they are. Maybe they're going to be a little bit disoriented. This is about 12 to 15% of our sleep. And then stage five, which is known as rapid eye movement or REM sleep, which we've heard about. That's stage five. So our breathing is going to become irregular. Our eyes are going to jerk in various directions. Maybe our mu- our muscles are paralyzed. Heart rate is increasing. Blood pressure is increasing. This is also where men develop erections in sleep. So this is about 20 to 25 percent of our dream of our sleep. And this is where we dream. This is where we're making dreams is in REM sleep. When it comes to the content of dreams, scientists think, you know, What's going through our minds before we fall asleep could really affect the content of our dreams. I, for one, know I've had the very classic late to an exam situation or forgot to study for an exam, especially right around finals when I was in school. Um, That will really get me going if I've been thinking about something really embarrassing. I'm sure that'll show up in my dreams the other night. I had had a rather embarrassing moment shocking when I'm so full of grace and poise as anyone who knows me can contradict. Uh, But I basically had this dream then afterwards that my partner had forgotten something at home and needed me to rush it to his office. And I was in such a hurry to get it to him. I just ran out the door and I was walking through our little town and I couldn't figure out why everyone was looking at me and they were staring at me and I was so uncomfortable and I realized I had run out the door totally naked and forgotten my key in the house. So now I was locked outside in our little town totally naked and I spent a majority of the dream trying simultaneously to get this thing that my partner needed to him at work and also try and find something to cover myself in, which ended up being a bunch of leaves from the bushes by our house. So I know I had had an embarrassing moment that day and then ended up having you know embarrassing uh, emotions in my dreams. There's been a study of about 320 adults that focuses on the characters that appear in our dreams, which is so cool. I would never have thought of a study on that, like to do a study on that. I think it's amazing. Um, So it was 320 adults, which found 48% of the characters in our dreams are a person that we know by name. 35% of our characters are going to, we're going to know by their social role, like um, a priest or a a politician or a police officer, you know, someone we're going to know by their, the role that they're holding in our dreams. And then 16% were people that we don't recognize. Of those named characters, those 48% of named characters, 32% of those were identified by appearance, 21% identified by their behavior, 45% by just their face, and another 44% were identified because the dreamer just knew who that person was without any other kind of identifying feature. So while Freud thought that dreams maybe eased repression and allowed memories to be reinstated while we sleep, a recent study shows that sleep didn't help us forget unwanted memories. Uh, It might even counteract suppression of memories. So there's two types of effects that characterize memories being incorporated during dreams. There's the day residue effect, which I mentioned earlier which basically involves the immediate incorporation of events from the preceding day, then the dream lag effect, which incorporates delayed about a week or even potentially those evolutionary dreams. 
It takes us processing memories into dreams, probably about seven days the cycle works. And these processes can further the functions of like socio-emotional adaptation and memory consolidation. Now, most fascinating to me, there has been a study on the content of dreams and what are the common dreams that people have. Now, they've done this study with a questionnaire and there's 55 typical dreams that we have and I'm, I'm gonna read them to you, so bear with me. So the 55 dream themes are schools, teacher, and studying are the first one. I know I've had those, lots and lots of schools, teachers, and studying tests um, and dreams. Being chased or pursued, literally just had one the other night where I was being chased around a hotel by a man wielding a knife. Um, sexual experiences, falling, arriving late, a living person being dead, a person now dead being alive, flying or soaring through the air, failing an exam, being on the verge of falling. I'll get those sometimes and I'll like jerk myself awake like I'm catching myself. <laughs> um, being frozen with fright, being physically attacked, being naked, eating delicious food, swimming, being locked up, insects or spiders, being killed, losing teeth. I don't know about you guys, but I have losing teeth dreams all the time. When I was a kid, I used to have this dream that my teeth were too big for my mouth and then they started falling out. So apparently losing teeth dreams are really, really common. Um, being tied up, being inappropriately dressed. Like I said, I was wearing leaves running around our house. Being a child again, trying to complete a task successfully, being unable to find a toilet, discovering a new room and a home. I also have those. I love the dreams where my brain builds worlds. And I had this one a lot as a kid where there was a house next to our house that didn't exist in the real world. And every time I went into it, there was new rooms in that house. Um, having superior knowledge or mental ability, losing control of a vehicle, fire, wild, violent beasts, seeing a face close to yours, snakes, magical powers, seeing or hearing a presence in the room, finding money, floods, killing someone, seeing yourself die, being half awake, people behaving in a menacing way, seeing yourself in a mirror, being a member of the opposite sex, being smothered, encountering God, seeing a flying object crash, earthquakes, angels, part animal, part humans, tornadoes, being at the movies, seeing extraterrestrials, traveling to another planet, being an animal, seeing a UFO, have someone experiencing an abortion, or being an object. And I apologize if you heard a little meow in the background. My cat just woke up and realized that I was in the room with him. <laughs> um, so it's interesting because, as I said, there's kind of con context of dreams. So while there was dreams in the ancient world, people dreamed commonly of crops and animals and water and earth because their lives were so much more tied to the earth and dependent on seasons and the harvest we now have dreams that reflect where we are so this one study saw that from 1956 to 2000 there was a real increase in the percentage of people who reported flying in their dreams and this mirrors when commercial air travel became a real part of our culture so there's really, that's really interesting how what we are experiencing in our culture, in our everyday societal life might be reflected as normal and integrated into our psyche while we sleep. Unfortunately, it is rather common for us to forget our dreams. So 
A study suggests that people over the age of 10 dream four to six times each night, but rarely remember our dreams. So basically the rule of thumb is five minutes after a dream, we've forgotten 50% of its content, increasing to 90% of its content being forgotten after five minutes later. So 10 minutes after our dream, we've forgotten 90% of what happened in the dream. And most dreams are totally forgotten by the time they wake up. So if you're interested in remembering your dreams, the tip that this website gives essentially is waking up naturally and not with an alarm, which might be a little bit more plausible during pandemic time, maybe not so much in normal time. Um, Focusing on the dream as much as you possibly can upon waking up, then writing down as much about the dream as you can remember right when you wake up and make that record of dreams and that act of recording dreams routine. Keep a dream diary by the bed. So we've learned that there's a few things that influence how much of our dream remains intact. One of those is age. We tend to not remember as much about our dreams as we age. Um, This evolution of forgetting our dreams seems to occur faster in men than it does with women. Also, gender impacts our recollection of dreams. A study of 108 males, 110 females, found no difference between the amount of aggression, friendliness, sexuality, male characters, weapons, or clothes in the content of the dream, but did find that females feature a higher number of family members, babies, children, and indoor settings than those of males. Also, dream recall is heightened in patients that have insomnia. So that's pretty interesting. If you have insomnia, maybe you have a better chance of remembering your dreams. Now, just about everyone dreams, and they find in studies that children, female children have more anxiety in their dreams than men do, but girls dream more often than boys about the loss of a person or falling, socially disturbing situations, aggressive animals, family members, etc., Another study found that pregnant women are more likely to dream about pregnancy, childbirth, fetuses. Um, It's more likely that you're dreaming when you're pregnant in the late third trimester than rather in your early pregnancy. Also, pregnant women tend to have more morbid elements to their dreams. Additionally, caregivers like those that work in hospice centers will also have dreams that are a little bit realistic, you know, that reflect what they're going on in their dream. Um, And caregivers will interact with their patient in their usual capacity, but report being frustrated by their inability to help as fully as desired. Uh, They also find that bereavement really impacts people and what they're dreaming about. Uh, Dreams and oppressive dreams, dreams about bereavement, were more common in the first year of bereavement and were more likely in those who suffer from anxiety and depression. And, and also, it's more common after bereavement to dream of the person that died that you lost. About 58% of 278 people in a study noted that they dreamed about their deceased loved ones after bereavement. Uh, another interesting fact is uh, about 80% of participants younger than the age of 30 dreamed solely in color. And at 60 years old, 20% said they dreamed in color. And this is thought to basically be because of the common now element of having colored TVs, where people who are maybe older than 60 didn't always have colored TVs. They started their life with black and white TVs, and so it worked its way into their dream is that they can now dream in black and white. Also, uh, when it comes to dreaming, people who have different kinds of abilities have different kinds of dreams. So uh, like when it comes to people who are deaf, they find that 
about 80% of dream reports of participants who have deafness didn't indicate that that impairment showed up in their dreams. They could hear and they could understand language. Uh, People who had paraplegia, they could run and walk and swim in their dreams, even if they'd been paralyzed since birth and had never done any of those things in their life, which is fascinating to me. You know, it's just it dreams can really break the boundaries of what's going on in reality. So that is a little bit on the modern science of what's going on with dreaming. And if you found that interesting, I highly, highly recommend checking out that article, What Does It Mean When We Dream by Hannah Nichols on Medical News Today. Uh, I just think that is so interesting. Really cool. And finally, I thought what may be kind of fun for us is if we plugged in that dream I had about the bear into one of those online dream dictionaries. I have a book that interprets dreams, but of course it's back home in the UK and I'm visiting my parents in the States right now. So I figured we'd just use the online dream dictionary and just kind of wrap up this episode by quickly interpreting one of my dreams. (laughs) All right, so I've gone ahead and plugged in bear into the dream dictionary and it says here so this is on dreammoods.com it says here to see a bear in your dream represents independence strength death and renewal and or resurrection bears are symbolic of the cycle of life you may also be undergoing a period of introspection and thinking in particular if you see a bear in your grandmother's house then it implies that your grandmother is a dominating figure in your life the dream may also be a pun on the word bear B-A-R-E. Perhaps you need to bear your soul and let everything out into the open, or there's a situation where you need to just grin and bear it. To dream that you are being pursued or attacked by a bear denotes anger and uncontrolled aggression. You feel trapped. Perhaps you're in a threatening situation, some overwhelming obstacle, or domineering and possessive relationship. Um, And apparently to dream of a polar bear means something entirely different. So maybe that's true. I don't know. I would say feeling trapped by like the pandemic potentially and the situation that's going on in the world uh maybe i'm not cut out for a dream dream interpreter job in in ancient mesopotamia or anything like that um let's see what else was in my dream i also know that my cat was in my dream so let's see if it comes up with anything about dreaming about your cat my goodness, there's, if you dream about a car, there's a lot going on there. So if you ever ever dream about a car, there's about a page of interpretation here. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Let's see. Here we go. All right. To dream about cats. Uh, to see a cat in your dream symbolizes an independent spirit, feminine sexuality, creativity, and power. It also represents misfortune and bad luck. The dream symbol has different significance depending on whether you are a cat lover or not. The cat could indicate that someone is being deceitful or treacherous towards you. If the cat is aggressive, then it suggests that you are having problems with the feminine aspect of yourself. If you are afraid of the cat in your dream, then it suggests that you are fearful of the feminine. The dream may be a metaphor for cattiness or someone who is catty and malicious. If you see a cat with no tail, then it signifies a loss of independence and a lack of autonomy. To dream that you cannot find your cat highlights your independent spirit. You need to allow yourself to be free and not let anyone or anything hold you back. To dream that a cat is biting you symbolizes the devouring female. Perhaps you are taking and taking without giving. You may be expressing some fear or frustration, especially when something is not going as planned. To dream that you are saving the life of a cat implies that you are reclaiming your independence and power. Hmm. Felt a little sexist there in the beginning, but all right. 
Uh, to dream that a cat is scratching you suggests that you're feeling threatened. To see a black cat in your dream indicates that you are experiencing some fear and using your psychic abilities and believing in your intuition. You may erroneously associate the black cat with evil, destruction, and bad luck. In particular, if that black cat is biting, clawing, or attacking you, then the dream means that you must acknowledge what your intuition is trying to tell you. You can no longer ignore it. Do not be afraid and face the situation. To dream that a cat killed a spider suggests you're expressing your femininity in a seductive and cunning manner. To see a dead cat or hear a cat being killed implies that you're lacking autonomy and independence. To see a cat playing in your dream refers to your frisky nature. <laughs> to see a cat with green spikes suggests that jealousy is preventing you from forming meaningful relationships. Dreaming of a cat without a body or any legs symbolizes limited independence. Seeing two identical cats means you need balance in your life. Dreaming of thousands of cats running around a house indicates lack of direction in your life. If you dream of a cat with two heads, it implies indecision. Um, and you can also go to a whole other link on black cat or injured cat. Um, there's also cat eyes, cat litter box, all sorts of stuff on cats. So that apparently is what my dream means. I don't, I'm, I think I'm pretty comfortable with my feminine side. So uh, I was saving my cat in the dream. So I'm going to say that that's me reclaiming my independence um, and maybe reclaiming my independence from the feeling of being trapped by the bear since I was saving the cat from the bear. So that's my interpretation of my dream. I really hope you enjoyed this discussion of dreams. I realize now as we approach the end that it was a bit frazzled and a bit all over the place. And I'm going to put that down to this being my first episode and that it's been a really crazy week um, getting back to the States and, and dealing with a bunch of other stuff. So I hope it wasn't too hard to listen to. And I will be back with you guys next week for a new episode. I am not entirely sure what that episode is going to be at this moment. Um, I'm hoping that I might get some suggestions from you guys uh, or otherwise I'm, I'm going to come up with something. I mean, I have a couple ideas knocking around in there, so we'll see. If you have any wonderful ideas and suggestions for topics for next week or any other week, then please feel free to reach out to me. I have an email going. That email is themidnightowlpodcast at gmail.com. So that's themidnightowlpodcast at gmail.com. I also have an Instagram page. It's themidnightowlpodcast. That's again, the Midnight Owl Podcast. And feel free to message me on there or drop me an email if you have a topic that you think would be really cool because I'm sure I would too. So thanks so much for joining me here on the Midnight Owl. Have a good night.